Today on the History Factory Podcast, we sit down with Scott Reams, the longtime Nike historian. I'm your host, Jason Dressel, and welcome to the History Factory Podcast, a new podcast at the intersection of business and history. And I say new because this is officially the inaugural episode of the History Factory Podcast, but it's a makeover. It's a generation 2.0 of our History Factory Plugged In podcast, which we have decommissioned for a new ship. That podcast, which was our first foray into this medium, has been great, and we're building on some of the learnings from that experience over the last few years with this new podcast, which is an extension of a broader rebrand of History Factory, the brand heritage and archives agency that I'm honored to lead. And if you're interested in learning more about History Factory, then you can check us out at historyfactory.com. And you can access all of the old and future podcasts in the same feed, so you can go back and listen to past History Factory plugged-in shows. And we're going to move forward with the new History Factory podcast. How may it be different, you may ask? Well, uh, first, the name. Uh, Sometimes you come up with a name, you don't overthink it, and then you just go with it. And that's what happened with History Factory plugged in. Uh, We threw out the idea, the name stuck, and off we went. So now in a major shift, we've decided to really underthink it and just go with the History Factory podcast, because the thinking here is that if we're going to use this podcast to build the brand awareness of History Factory, why put any extra sauce on it? Let's just use the most basic ingredients and keep it really lean and simple. Also, um, you'll see that we're going to streamline and categorize our editorial focus a little more based on the kinds of shows we've had and What we like to talk about, we'll highlight iconic brands, their origin stories, and maybe what's misunderstood about them. We'll talk about books that have a unique take on business, both from a historical perspective and from the perspective of of history in the making. And uh, in an area that that seems to be growing, and we'll talk about that on this podcast, we'll, we'll also explore brands and the use of brand history and heritage in entertainment as well as other special edition topics from time to time. And we're going to bring some other History Factory voices into uh, History Factory's new podcast, like my colleague Aaron Narlock, who you are about to hear have an awesome conversation with Nike's Scott Reams. So we're excited about these tweaks to our format and hope that you enjoy becoming a listener and follower of the History Factory podcast. If you like what we're bringing here, share us with friends, follow us, give us a nice rating, all that good stuff. This is a fun project and a labor of love for a handful of us here on the History Factory team. And we hope that you find the content to be an interesting, informative, and fun listen. So with that, today we have the good fun of bringing you a conversation between my colleague Aaron Narlock and Scott Reams, who before officially retiring from Nike recently, was the company's first historian and a nearly 30-year veteran of the company. And, you know, one, one of the reasons why we were excited to sit down with Scott wasn't just because he has so much insight and so many great stories about one of the great companies and brands of our time, although he does, but also because there seems to be a, a phenomena happening. I don't know if this is something that you've noticed, but there's a trend seemingly underway of companies and brands that appear to be increasingly integrating into the lexicon of popular culture entertainment. And the movie Air is just one of the latest examples of that. 
Let me first say that we have not done any real research on this. So this is admittedly anecdotal, but there's been media about it. And I've heard it discussed on some podcasts that I listen to, including recently um, the popular podcast, The Rewatchables, which is dedicated to films. And um, as the amount of streaming video content is continuing to proliferate, one of the things that I've noticed is this increase of business history stories in mainstream content. What really caught my attention first on this was the series, The Offer, which if you're not familiar with it, it's a really entertaining series on Paramount Plus, at least that's where it was initially, about the deal-making behind the film, The Godfather. What struck me about that show, which is, entertaining, by the way, and, and has a cast that includes Miles Teller, Colin Hanks, and Giovanni Rabisi. What, what caught my attention about that was this kind of meta aspect to it, that it's on the Paramount Plus network, but Paramount, the studio, is also the setting of the show with Paramount Studio and Paramount executives from the 1970s as characters of the show. Shows like The Offer or We Crashed about the WeWork collapse or the new Apple film Tetris or Air about Nike and the Michael Jordan deal. These are all really popular and entertaining productions that both have an audience and are not being produced with the banking and backing of the companies they represent. As you're about to hear from Scott, for instance, Nike had zero involvement in Air and I'm fascinated about this because, as you'll also hear from Scott, as entertaining as Air is, it's also not really accurate in the least. And look, I'm I'm not naive or a romanticist. I'm not suggesting that the world we live in is in any way, you know, more or less accurate than ever before. There's always been fiction inspired by real events. But what I do find interesting is how real companies, real brands, and real people and real business events are increasingly becoming part of this entertainment landscape. My theory on why this is happening is because of probably lots of things, but at least two things. One, it's a reflection of the more prominent role that brands and the presence of large corporations have been playing in society over the last 50 years and their just presence in popular culture. And... Two, it's the popularity of shows that are set in a different time and the power of nostalgia, which is nothing new. But clearly, these shows and films would not be getting made and distributed if there was not an audience for them. It's an interesting thing. I think it's going to be an interesting trend to follow, especially in scenarios when companies and brands don't like how their representation is happening and, and they're concerned about the, the impact on their reputation and ultimately their financial performance. And I just think it's going to be really interesting in terms of these portrayals that are deeply inaccurate and how over time um, companies and brands may, may respond to that. As you'll hear Scott explain, overall, Nike is probably very okay with the net effect of air because it helps sustain the lore and the myth and the legend of the Nike and Jordan brands. But minimally, there are a lot of people and events that are mischaracterized or left out of the story entirely. 
So Aaron and Scott are going to talk a lot. They're going to talk about a lot more than just air. Aaron herself has a background in heritage brands and has worked with other shoe apparel companies. So you'll hear she and Scott kind of refer to that. They've got a common ground there. And they have a great conversation, not only about the history of Nike, but also just a lot of really interesting insights about building and running a corporate archives and history function for a global company. It's a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy listening to Scott Reams and my colleague, Aaron Narlock. Thanks for that intro. Um, I am so happy to have you here with us today, Scott. Air is everything at Nike, and the movie Air has really brought to life a lot of right, some legend and lore, some myths, um, but yes. but it's also cemented this time period now in the consciousness of culture. So what are your thoughts on this? How, how, how is it operating for Nike? What's the value? Like, what are your well, thoughts? Oh my gosh, this has been, ru- not ruining, it's been ruling my life not ruining, uh, for about a month, right? So first off, Nike was not involved really in any way in this movie at all. The only person, I, the only actor that I know reached out to one of the to the character he was playing was Chris Tucker talking to Howard White. Uh, but nobody talked to Phil, nobody talked to, well, Rob Strasser and Peter Moore both passed. Um, so, and nobody talked to me, nobody talked to the Department of Nike archives. So there was no involvement there. So that was frustrating to me when I found later myself watching the movie at a there's an advanced show that Howard had arranged for us to see. And like the first scene, there Howard, the Howard White character and, and the Sonny Vaccaro character, Matt Damon, are talking about Just Do It. And I'm like, Just Do It came out in 1988. This movie's set in 1984, you know. So again, I was trying really hard, and so many people said it's a movie not a documentary, just go and enjoy it. And I was trying. And then Aaron, they started with that. And I was like, oh God, here we go. And then one thing after another, it's like, no, 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 you know? And and so I watched it all the way through and my mind was kind of reeling like, okay, well, I don't, there were a couple of things shown that uh, I was like, I don't, we've talked to almost all the people that were in this movie. And I don't remember ever hearing that story before. So again, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means either we didn't think to ask the question or it just didn't come up. But I remember thinking at the time, I got to go double check that. So I called a couple of my old staff and I said, this happened. And they said, nah, I don't think so. And I said, but, and then that happened. And I said, I don't remember that. Either. Like, yeah, we haven't heard that either. So I was then invited to go a second time a week later for the grand opening on the 5th of April. And this was the, a bunch of alumni. Nike has an alumni association. And so they rented out the theater and myself and a man named Mike Caster, who was actually uh, in the room when the, when the Jordan pitch was made, and not in the movie because no one knows who he is. No one knows about him. He's like the only. He's like the one. Well, now they do. I'm sorry, Mike. Uh, he's like the one guy I know I can trust because he's like the only person that doesn't claim that he was responsible for signing Michael Jordan. You know, so he and I agreed to do a panel discussion afterwards. And we never really even got to that because there was the room was filled with a ton of people who knew Rob and Peter 
and Sonny and Phil had worked in Nike at, in the 1980s. So they, they knew much more of the story than we even needed to, to present. And my goodness, there was a buzz of people uh, talking about Jason Bateman being nothing, nowhere like Rob Strasser, um, Peter Moore being called Pete when his name was Peter, nobody called him Pete. You know, so there were little, there was little, little things like that, Pete, Peter. And there were bigger things like Sonny Vaccaro never, never um, negotiated contracts. That was Rob Strasser. Dolores Jordan, Michael's mom, didn't, inv- didn't negotiate the contract. That was David Falk, the agent. Yeah, so like, oh, then it started to then it started to bubble up. And then somebody finally said, when did Sonny go to North Carolina? And everybody said, he didn't. He never went to North Carolina. Yeah, so then I'm like, oh my gosh, this is really spiraling because these are things I didn't know. That was one of the things I didn't know. I just have a problem with that just because it didn't need to be told that way. But I'm not a Hollywood mogul. I'm just a historian who knows the actual story. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a, sometimes it's being that steward and holding on to the mission of an organization for, for your lifetime, really. Mm-hmm. You've yeah. worked as an, as a historian. Um, can you just give us a little bit of an introduction when you started at Nike and then how you made your way into working as a historian and with the Department of Nike Archives? The best name of an archive possible. So DNA. I'm glad you like it because it, it was my idea. So I know, I know. Amazing. I'm, 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 pretty, I'm pretty happy with myself because some, some of the Nike acronyms are so tortured. You know, it's like, you just went out of your way to come up with something goofy to, so it all make a word or something like that. So when I was kicking around the idea of basically proposing of the historian role be created, and I'm, I'm getting out of order here, but since we started talking about DNA, I'll, I'll start there first. When I was kicking around the idea of, of creating the historian role in 2004, uh, we had an archive and records department, and it was just called, very imaginatively, archive and records. Or maybe it was records and archives. I can't remember. Um, very, very descriptive. You certainly know what you're talking about, but it just didn't really have so much punch in my mind. So I put together a proposal that essentially would take the current archive and records department, muscle it up with an historian role. So there would be uh, capturing of the stories behind the things, right? They were really great at capturing the things. They had a ton of really cool old products and vintage products, artifacts, but the stories behind them were spotty, contradictory sometimes, um, incomplete. And so that was when I created the, or thought of the creation of the, of the historian role. And then I thought, well, as long as we're going to muscle up the, the archives, let's rename it. And so that's when DNA came to me, like like Jeff Johnson with Nike in the middle of the night. No, it wasn't like that. But uh, so anyway, so that's, so that's, I've done the end first. So then we go back to the beginning. So I, I started at Nike in 1992. And anybody who knows Nike history, that was the, that was just like a nutty time in the company history. We've been number uh, one for a long time. We, we dropped to number two to a company called Reebok, which I believe you're familiar with, Aaron. Um, just a little. <laughs> just a little. Uh, so in the late 80s, we were regaining our footing a little bit. We'd gotten um, this guy named Michael Jordan to wear shoes. We had Just Do It. We had Bo Nose in the cross-training category. Went from zero dollars to you know, a billion dollars in less than 10 years. So by 1990 or 91, we we caught up to Reebok again and passed them. So in, from 91 to 97 or 98, we went from a $3 billion a year business 
to $9 billion, which is insane. And so I was there in 92 as part of this gigantic wave of, of uh, hiring and growth, right? So I was hired to do the Nike town. We had two Nike towns at that point, uh, Portland, the first one, and Chicago had just opened in July of 92. So I was hired to do the marketing and events for the Nike town stores. Uh, and then they added Atlanta, Orange County, you know, it just became this rolling uh, sea of, of Nike towns across the country. And I started working with archives uh, a little bit because we have a lot of we had a lot of displays in the stores, and especially in the early days, they weren't so much about retail; they're more about marketing. So there would be a lot of athlete uh, autographed athlete stuff in the store, especially in Chicago, as you can imagine, in the '90s, a lot of Bull stuff, Michael, etc. Um, so I got to know the folks a little bit, and then over time, when I moved into the sports marketing department and then into the PR department. I would work with archives again, uh, depending on what we were doing, what we were launching. Uh, if there was an historical component or component to it, then I would want to um, involve that if possible. So I would talk with those folks. I was aware of them, but not fully aware. You know what I mean? So the the tipping point for me was in 2002 when I was in the I was in the USPR department, and they created a new position or a new department called Global Brand uh, Communications, a Global Business Communications. I remember what it was originally called. And there were three of us who were elevated into that global role. And that essentially was to be in charge of um, earnings calls, uh, annual meetings, uh, shareholder meetings, the communications for these things. And then for our corporate executives, so Phil Knight, Mark Parker, et cetera, there were three of us who handled the, the communications for those folks. And I had, had luck of the draw. I got Phil Knight and a couple other senior executives. So I would I would be facilitating interviews that they would do with USA Today or Fortune Magazine or you know, whatever. And invariably, they would ask questions, get asked questions about the history of the company and you know how much did you, when was the swoosh designed, who designed it, how much did you pay? And I'm not kidding you, Aaron, every time any of them told the story, even the same person would tell the story, it would differ, right? And we paid $50 for the swoosh. We paid $75 for the swoosh. We paid $35 for the swoosh. I'm like, okay. We paid something for the swoosh. It had to be one particular dollar amount. How come it keeps changing? And again, nothing that was really dramatically changing the history of the company or even, so it's really more of a, uh, just an irritating little nit of like, well, what's, what, what did we pay? You know, and uh, so that, that started getting at me. And then I started realizing the more we had these, these great people telling these stories was we didn't have a lot of them written down. It was all Oracle type things where you go, and you hear somebody and they tell a great story, which is fantastic. And there's nothing better than hearing it from the originator, but we're not immortal, right? So, and we had just lost Bill Bowerman in 1999. He had passed away. Rob Strasser, who had been a pivotal person in our corporate history, had died in 93, you know, and just in time, you know, it was undefeated, right? So it was going to happen to all of us. And so all these things came to my mind. And I pitched, I put together that proposal, the DNA proposal in 2004. And ran it by Phil. Phil liked it. And a few months, a few weeks, a few months later, I got a call that a headcount had been approved and they were going to create the historian role. And was I interested? And I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just incredible. So early days, what did the historian role look like? It was definitely a wild west to a certain extent, right? I mean, there were documents that existed. We have our annual reports. We have old memos, things like that. But the archive up to that point, it had been a lot more about the product, which is fine, certainly, you know, the Jordan 1, the Jordan 2, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and the documents, the letters, the memos from the 60s and 70s 
um, were not really front and center. So I started there, right? Because I there, there was the book that uh, was written by J.B. Strasser, Julie Strasser, and her sister called Swoosh, The Unauthorized Biography of Nike and the Men Who Played There. And that had a, an odd pass because when Julie started to pitch the book, she and Rob were working for Nike. But and while they were working, while she was writing the book, that's when Rob left, as did Julie. And so it became a very odd um, journey for that book. So a lot of people within the company felt that it was perhaps biased because there was now this thing about, well, Rob left and now Rob and, and Phil aren't friends anymore. And so, and I'll get to that later. But so, so that was the only real guidepost that I had. There was a book of anything that had stories about the early, early days. And what I would find is a lot of our internal stuff with the Nike internal timelines and other things have incorrect information. Okay, I'm literally not going to trust any Nike timeline. I'm going to start a brand new one and I'm putting nothing on it unless I can confirm it from a pot of an actual source, like a newspaper article, a memo or something, or just with my best forensic efforts, right? For sure. Something you mentioned, you talked about lore, right? And and the primary sources, so matching articles, but also talking with people. Uh, I love that the concept of product has legend and lore all around it. So thinking about the use cases for all this research you've done for Nike, where do you see maybe early on, where was the value in evolving over, you know, 20 years now since there's been a formalized DNA department? Where's the value today in having the Department of Nike Archives? Well, there's been a number of uh, developments, most recently, thanks to the company's 50th anniversary last year that we were, um, I actually... (laughs) bailed before that and retired in uh, October 21 before the 50th anniversary, which got a lot of uh, snide looks from my old staff because I'm like, really? Now you're leaving? Um, but so, so the fit, let me go back. So one of the first things we were adamant about when I started to hire, I was able to start hiring people over time. So I had zero people in the early, in the beginning. And when I retired, I had seven people reporting to me. So that alone, if you know, I mean, if anybody works in a corporation knows headcount, and what a god-awful thing it is to try to get that. So the fact that Nike gave me seven after zero shows that, I mean, that right there shows that they value the uh, the work that we were doing. But when, from the very beginning, we I had this mantra of we have to tell stories. We have to stay true to why it matters, right? Yes, stuff happened a certain time in a certain way at a certain day. But if it doesn't matter, if it doesn't impact the current generations of Nike, it's more just academic and it's not really educational. It's more like, huh, you know, and I always use the the example of like a Hershey bar, right? A Hershey bar, your grandpa will say like, oh, when I was a kid, Hershey bars were 10 cents. You're like, great, grandpa, they're they're $1.50 now. So what difference does it make? You know, movies movies were a quarter and a gallon of gas was 15 cents. I don't really learn anything that it's more like a, it's more of a, huh, so we tried, and I tried, and then my staff tried really hard to say, okay, what are the stories that come from our past that are that are true and authentic and, and might be inspiring because they involve people whose names you've heard? But what, how can we pull that line through time so it, it imparts a lesson on you that is valuable to you today, even if it's not something you would do in a shoot? And I'm quickly, I'll give you an example. So the Air franchise clearly is one of the 
pinnacles of Nike. I mean, eras, everything for forever. Since not well, since not forever, but since 1978, uh, the Tailwind was the first shoe to incorporate Nike Air, and it was tested and tested and tested and tested because, again, you know, you know, footwear. Aaron. I mean, there's the, the way you inject hot molds, you know, and, and, and to try to put a small plastic airbag in a heel when you're putting in hot, um, you know, phylon around it or whatever, it, it, it perturbs, they pop. So they spent a good 18 months figuring out how do you essentially re-manufacture shoes so that you can put a tiny airbag in, in the heel. So all that work's going on. They got a secret building. They got code names. I mean, it's like top, top secret. And they finally figure it out. So they're getting ready to launch the tailwind in December of 1980 at, a, at the Honolulu Marathon, just a small, like 400, some pairs, 300 pairs. And at the very last minute, someone in the marketing department, no one will claim who's responsible for this, but somebody decided the shoe should change, the color is wrong, they should change the color. So there was an edict sent out saying change the color. So they they chose some uh, a paint to color, but it was like, it was, it was metallic silver, and it literally had tiny little shreds or shards of silver in it. Well, little tiny shards of silver when on, on mesh over time abrade the mesh. And so those early Nike Air shoes would come apart. The mesh would come apart. The airbag worked just fine. But the terminology in the footwear industry, especially back then, uh, when, when you have a shoe fall apart, like that was called either it's called a blowout or something like that. So the connotation there was, oh, a blowout, the airbag blew out. You know, so it was it was like one tiny little change nearly probably didn't set, it probably would have canceled air, but it would have set it back quite a ways. And then it would have been in the bad publicity. So the lesson from all that, and this I got from Jeff Johnson, again, flight number one, uh, his lesson was test everything, right? Even a paint color change can have an impact. So even though that happened in 1978, the test everything uh, lesson is just as relevant today, especially when you can tell them, tell current designers, yeah, even something you would never think could uh, could essentially sink a product, can sink a product, and it happened to Jeff, uh, Jeff Johnson, and it happened to the tailwind. So those are the, the, the stories that you know, I really I gravitate towards, because otherwise it's just history lessons, which again, there's a time for that, and it's fine to tell history lessons. But if you really want to make your your department and your and your your asset, I mean, make your your assets valuable to the company, you've got to show how they impact and, and potentially even uh, in fa- uh, impact the, the bottom line. That's a lot harder to do, right? I mean, designers can come to the archives department and they can spend you know three days pouring over the first thirty Pegasus shoes, and one of them gets an epiphany for Pegasus forty two or three or whatever we're up to now. Um, and it sells, you know, twice as many as anything else. You, I can't really, as the as the historian, go to the CEO and say, hey, "You're welcome." You know, we we helped inspire that designer. You made an extra five hundred thousand dollars, whatever. Give me more money, right? I mean, so it's just it's so much part of the process. But I can't I can't just say that was us. You know, so the, anything that we could do that would reinforce the value of the company, uh, well, even as, even as uh, Training new people. We worked with the learning and development department, so we helped them uh, infuse their uh, employee onboarding with uh, interesting stories. We would help them get speakers, or I would speak, or different people would speak, just to get people right off the bat to know that they're working for a company that values its heritage and it values its culture. Well, who who doesn't want to be a part of that? You know, 
Yeah, for sure. I think you you really hit it on the the head there when you were talking about reinforcing that value, the cultural value. I've often found those timeless truth stories that you just mentioned, right? Test everything. These are great rallying cries and great ways to create community at at large organizations like Nike. Um, Just wrapping up, any, any thoughts or anything you'd like to share or thinking about the future? Where do you see... Um, Nike archives continuing to contribute to Nike moving forward. What I hope, and there was some movement towards this, I don't think it's happened yet, but what I hope is that the archive team will be allowed to interact directly with the outside world. Um, I was not, anytime we would get an inquiry from the media or anyone outside, even academics, academia, I would have to get a hold of Nike Communications or Nike Legal, depending on what the request was. And not, not all the requests were approved. And so I, I would I would actually be frustrated because I'm like, well, I could answer that question, you know, in five minutes, you know, and, and like, well, we don't want to do this, that, the other thing. Like, well, why? Well, it's a lot of time and effort. I'm like, no, it's five minutes, you know. So we didn't have the freedom to do it. And then we could get in, and and rightly so. I mean, I don't want to go make some, you know, talk to somebody in some at USA Today, let's say, and say something and then find out that the PR department have been working on exclusive with the Wall Street Journal and I'm now just blowing it for them. So I understand the need to have a, a cohesive strategic effort, but there are so many things and I've learned that with my with my LinkedIn, right? I mean, that literally was just done one day. I was frustrated with, it might've been the swoosh and the name Nike again being told incorrectly. And I I just sat at my desk and my computer just pounded out like, no, here's how it actually happened. And I got a bunch of likes and I got a bunch of shares and I got a bunch of friend requests or LinkedIn, whatever they're called, LinkedIn requests. So in the future, that's where I hope uh, DNA can go. Uh, they still have the same number of staff that I that I had when I left. So that's good because there was there have been some cutbacks and, and they've been untouched on the, on the curation and, and storytelling side. So I hope that that means that Nike continues to, to value what they're doing. And I do think the 50th anniversary, the advertising that was done, so the product that was brought it back and brought and, and created showed um, some deep fingerprints from from the DNA team on it. And and just from what my staff, my old staff has told me about how crazy busy they are now because everybody you know knows that what they can deliver. It's it's the harder part is when you can inspire or, or infuse and interweave the history into the things going forward. It's like new building designs on the Nike campus or uh, new marketing uh, things that are that are culturally anchored, right? But are still relevant and interesting to a 23 year old or 21 year old in 2027. You know, basically people born in the 21st century now are Nike's target audience, right? Not old farts yeah. like me. So I'm I'm thrilled that there's so many people now on my staff, and we were we specialized, right? So I had one person work on basketball and a couple other smaller sports. One, you know, it's just because you cannot you cannot be an expert on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, that's true. You, that's you can't you can't be an expert on everything, but now more than ever, knowledge is cultural currency. So I I I wholeheartedly support the push to have um, the DNA staff more directly in connection um, with external you know fans. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Scott. It was great. Um, Yeah, it was just amazing. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks again to Scott Reams and Aaron Narlock. 
Great stuff. Thanks so much for listening to the new History Factory podcast, the podcast at the intersection of business and history. I'm Jason Dressel. Be well. <laughs>